Podcast, episode 50. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you here. So I want to talk about um, the Revoice Conference in uh, St. Louis that's uh, that's coming up. Now, actually, uh, I say it's coming up. It may already, have, I don't know when you'll be listening to this. It may be in the rearview mirror by the time you're listening to this. I don't know. But as I'm recording this, uh, the Revoice Conference in St. Louis is uh, approaching. And this is a conference that is intended to um, provide a welcoming uh, reception to LGBT Christians who want to obey the, histor- the historic Christian um, uh, injunctions against same-sex behavior, while at the same time um, giving room for or making room for uh, the um, sexual identity, gay identity, lesbian identity of the person involved. So that, uh, in in other words, uh, they want someone to be, uh, they want it to be possible for someone to be a gay celibate Christian. They have to be celibate um, because they, because of what the Bible teaches. But um, if they if they don't express their sexuality in a sexual act, then the identity that's associated with that uh, can be uh, fully embraced. Now there are a number of number of things that are wrong with this. Um, but probably most profoundly, most uh, in, a, in a fundamental sense, the, the biggest thing that's wrong with it is that it is privileging uh, gender confusion sexuality issues in a way that we never would privilege any other sin. So if you tried to look at what's being said about uh, same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and couple it with, and, and you're fine if you don't, as long as you don't touch anything, as long as you don't go the whole way. And you try to extract from that a theology of sanctification, and you apply it to any other sin, any other um, temptation, the results are laughable. Uh, no one would give the time of day to someone who tried to organize a conference for white supremacists who promised never to act on their belief that whites are superior. Um, you'd say, no, <laughs> no, that's sinful. Be done, be done with it. Well, suppose I've got a white, supremacy, a white supremacy orientation that I was born with, that I can't shake, that I can't get rid of. Uh, am I allowed to embrace that as my identity so long as I don't ever um, say or do anything that's explicitly white supremacist. Well, it's absurd. It'd be absurd uh, if you're talking about gambling. It'd be uh, gambling away your paycheck. It, I'm, I'm, my identity is that of a gambler, but I never bet anything. Or my identity is uh, someone who's attracted to long-legged blondes. And since uh, I'm married to somebody who isn't of that description, then I'm, I'm committed to never act on it. Uh, am I allowed to put together a conference where they put um, long-legged blonde attracted on my name tag? Well, uh, b- basically, to even think out loud is, is to send up uh, 
you know, people start wooting and laughing and slapping each other on the back and say, this is just crazy. This, this is not going to work. Well, so why, why is anything, why is something that's so manifestly um, not in keeping with any defensible approach to sanctification with regard to any sin being seriously entertained? Well, the only reason it could be seriously entertained by anyone is if it's preparation for capitulation on this point. So if we are, uh, it, it is fine to not make sense during the transition point between the historic Christian position and the new position that is eventually going to be adopted. During the transition, you don't have to make a lot of sense because you're in the process of tumbling. You're in the process of blowing over. You're in the, you're in the process of, of giving away the store. And once you have gone over to the other side and you have said that same-sex sexual expression is uh, to be embraced and you're to join the, the, the parades that we have in all our major cities, which are called pride parades, where you, where you embrace and, uh, and applaud the whole thing, um, same-sex attraction and same-sex activity, that's that's a self-consistent position. The secularists have already embraced it, and they are, they are running with it. The only way we could be comfortable with this patch job that St. Louis represents, that the Revoice uh, Conference represents, is if we are in that uncomfortable spot for a very short time. If the uh, gay celibate Christians uh, who are going to be gathering in St. Louis, we're going to be defending that position for the next 75 years. I can guarantee that they wouldn't be able to do it. That's not a sustainable project. They can, they can defend the position that they've occupied for a matter of months, maybe a few years, before we have the next great exegetical breakthrough. Right, so, um, so, that's it. Now, let me uh, say one other thing, uh, one other postscript to this. If, if this whole thing is designed to provide a, uh, a, a welcome to LGBTQ Christians who are not going to act on what they are attracted to, that makes sense for the L's and the G's, and also the B's, I guess, um, because you're talking about a, a lesbian who's attracted to other women, and so she's, if she uh, goes for this, she's going to say, and I'm going to commit myself to not engage in sexual activity with another woman. And a G, a gay, a male homosexual, is going to do the same thing, resolve to not have sex with another man. Um, the B, the same thing. But what about the T's and the Q's? What, what are they committing to not do? In other words, can someone be uh, transgender and identify as someone who is the opposite gender from what they are? Do they identify that way in their heart? Or do they get to dress that way? Are they committing themselves to not get surgery 
or are they committing themselves to no eyeliner? What is it that they are, what is it that's off limits for the T's and the Q's? So my book review for episode 50 in our podcast is um, a book by Tom Bethel, uh, and it's called Darwin's House of Cards. Darwin's House of Cards. Now, I've uh, read books on Darwinism for years, for decades. I've, <clears throat> I've read many, many books uh, <coughs> critiquing evolution, critiquing uh, Darwinism, and uh and Tom Bethel's book is a is a real contribution to the uh, to the genre. He's a uh, he's an intelligent, scientifically educated journalist, and he is bringing us up to speed on the state of the debate. What has the introduction of the intelligent design movement done? How how are Darwinists uh, responding to the criticism? What are some of the more recent arguments that have to be engaged with, and so on. Uh, so I really enjoyed this book. It was a very good overview, very good review of the rise and and the the rise and the uh, pending fall of Darwinism. Uh, there are just a couple of things that uh, I really enjoyed about this book that I'd like to pull out and highlight. One is the um, attention he gives to the problems created by convergent evolution, convergent evolution. Uh, and this is uh, the sort of thing that, um, well, let me explain it. Conver convergent evolution is when you have something like the eye, for example, uh, the organ that enables people, entities, critters, to see things. When you have the eye, um, it is false to say that every eye in the world, the octopus's eye and the eagle's eye and the human eye and the whale's eye, are all developed from the aboriginal eye. Uh, it is not the case, although Darwinists say that all of life um, has um, every living creature shares a common ancestry. That's the standard view that we all trace back to the original organic stuff that emerged from inorganic matter. Um, to say that we believe in uh, the uh, interrelatedness of all of life, that all life is related, it would be false to assume that all eyeballs are related. Um, a number of organs had to have evolved independently, that is, um, not all eyes are related. All life is related, but not all eyes are related. And according to the Darwinist account, some, uh, some 40, the eye has had to have evolved independently um, over 40 times, uh, resulting in different kinds of eyes. So it's not like you have the er eye way back, way back at the beginning and then all eyes descend from that. Uh, but eyes develop independently. But if you have a blind creature, a creature with no eyes, you have to, that creature does not know that there's such a thing as sight. There's, there's, a, the, there's a world out there that can be seen, but the creature does not know anything about it. 
and the genes that are mindlessly mutating don't know anything about it. The whole thing is a blind process. And so you've got the problem of convergent evolution. And that, and that means that whatever the odds are for um, the eye evolving blindly <laughs> um, all by itself, you then take the, uh, those odds and multiply them by 40. It's got to happen over and over and over again. Um, now, convergent evolution also has another wrinkle, and, uh, and that is the problem of marsupials. So if you look at Australia and you look at North America or look at Australia compared to the rest of the world, Australia appears to uh, have uh, come to the conclusion that uh, pouches are a good thing. Uh, marsupial animals are far more common uh, in Australia uh, than they are elsewhere. Um, it's not unheard of elsewhere, but marsupials are common. And, and in other parts of the world, um, the same mammal is placental. So uh, you've had, um, you've had uh, placental wolves and marsupial wolves. You have placental, um, even in the fossil record, we've got uh, placental saber-toothed cats and uh, uh, marsupial saber-toothed cats. There are moles that are placental and moles that are marsupial. Now, you're talking about an organ of generation and gestation which means it's not a trifle. It's not like uh, growing an extra finger, um, which means that the, the convergent evolution here is not the convergent evolution of a particular organ, but uh, perhaps the convergent evolution of this particular creature with all the other features that are shared by its uh, North American placental counterpart. Uh, in other words, the odds are the odds uh, get pretty. Um, it's a long shot, right? Uh, astronomical long shot. One last thing about uh, uh, I really enjoyed the conclusion of Bethel's book, uh, where he pointed out um, uh, sociologist uh, Peter Berger once uh, uh, talked about plausibility structures. A plausibility structure is what what makes a particular idea. Um, well, plausible. And so uh, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth, uh, shows how uh, Darwinism, the explicit Darwinism, natural selection, uh, came into th this model, was proposed uh, in a time when the plausibility structure for an evolutionary view of the world already existed. Uh, in other words, there was already belief in progress. There was already a warm, welcoming um, uh, place for this model of natural selection to function. Bethel concludes his book by pointing out that that plausibility structure for Darwinism, Darwinism is still the orthodox creed of materialistic scientists, but the external cultural plausibility structure supporting it isn't there anymore. Uh, it's missing. That plausibility structure could be understood as the flying buttresses that keep the cathedral of uh, Darwinism from collapsing. 
So back in the Victorian era, when you believed in inevitable progress, when you believed that uh, when you believed that man was getting better and better, and it was a trajectory upward, then it was pretty easy to fit Darwinism and, and survival of the fittest and natural selection in, into that. But uh, secularism has lost its faith, and man is now a cancer on the planet. We don't believe in progress. We don't believe it's going the right direction. We don't believe that there's this inevitable anything. And so that, plausible, that plausibility structure for Darwinism is now, as the French might say, lay gone. And uh, that being the case, uh, one of the things we can possibly anticipate is the collapse of Darwinism. So here we are at podcast episode 50, and we have come to our Harmartiology section. Remember, we are studying the, uh, the sins of the New Testament, the various Greek words for various sins. And we've come to the verb hamartano and uh, the noun hamartia. And this word for sin, not surprisingly, is so widespread uh, throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the New Testament, that I've broken it up into uh, uh, different books or segments of the New Testament. Hamartano is used a number of times in 1 Corinthians, but hamartia doesn't come up until chapter 15. Paul first tells believers to flee from fornication because every other sin is outside the body while sexual sin is a sin against one's own body. That's in 6.18. But to marry is not to commit a sin. All right, you're not, if, you, if you marry, you're not committing a sin, verse 28. And if a virgin marries, that is no sin either. So it's not a sin to marry, um, but it is a sin to sin um, if, you are, if you're not gifted with celibacy. If a man finds himself behaving in an unseemly way toward his virgin... He is not sinning by marrying. Okay, uh, that's in seven thirty-six. This is probably not an. Uh, this is probably not an interaction about a father and his daughter, uh, a father deciding not to give his daughter away, and it, I take it as also unlikely to be referring to a young man uh, with his betrothed, uh, because then you have to say that Paul's giving. Uh, very bizarre advice. He's saying to engaged couples, postpone getting married as long as you can. If you can keep your hands to yourself, then then stay perpetually engaged. That would be weird. And it would be weird to if it were describing a father and his daughter, because then it would be, uh, where, um, where does the inability to control yourself uh, come in? Um, now, I, I take a... Um, um, an off-the-beaten-path approach to this, uh, understanding this, which you can uh, follow up on. If you have a, transla- if you have a New English Bible, uh, NEB, you can read the, the 1 Corinthians passage and, and get my take on this. And also, uh, in my recent book, Commentary on 1 Corinthians, Partakers of Grace, I go into this a little bit. But in the early church, there was a class of women called subintroducti. That was the Latin uh, name for it who were essentially celibate wives. The setup was eventually condemned at the Council of, the Council of Elvira um, for all the reasons that you might expect. Um, this would explain why Paul then granted permission to marry if there was any hint of a moral problem. He could say, yeah, I know you took vows, but it'd be better to obey God's, uh, God's word than man's. 
Um, it would also explain why I, why I haven't preached through 1 Corinthians recently. I have enough I have enough troubles. So when it comes to debatable matters, Paul says that there is that to sin against the brethren by wounding their weak consciences in 8:12 is to sin against Christ himself. 8:12 also. In chapter 15, Paul summarizes the gospel and he says that Christ died for our sins. That's in 15:3. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, we are practitioners of a vain faith and we are still in our sins. In 15 17. Paul then charges the Corinthians to, uh, to awake to righteousness and sin not. That's in uh, 1534, Hamartano. Uh, we have hope through the resurrection because the sting of death is found in sin, 1556, and the strength of sin is the law, also 1556. God in the time of the sickness God in the doctor too You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.